Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending February 21. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up this week, you're going to hear Daniel James, who was filling in for Daniel Burt, because Daniel Burt is off being a father for a couple of weeks to Chubfish or Gabe the Babe. Uh, but in addition to hearing him, you'll hear our conversation with Maya Newell. She was in to talk about the film In My Blood It Runs. Also, um, we'd, I'd catch up on my kitchen renovations and things that secret things that we found hidden in the cupboards, uh, and we got a catch-up with Daniel Burt on the Chubfish update. Yes. Chubfish gave the babe. Uh, and also, Digger came in and talked to us about um, planting our winter vegetables. We had a fascinating discussion with Margaret Klein-Salomon about her book, Facing the Climate Emergency, How to Transform Yourself with Climate Truth. And we all had a, also had a chat with former breakfaster and director of the Wheeler Centre, Michael Williams, about the Wheeler Centre turning 10 years old. Melbourne's own. In My Blood It Runs is the story of 10-year-old Duan, who was a child healer, a good hunter, and speaks three languages. As he shares his wisdom of history and the complex world around him, we see him spark with his intelligence. Yet Duan is failing in school and facing increasing scrutiny from welfare and the police. As he travels precariously close to incarceration, his family fight to give him a strong traditional education alongside the Western education he becomes, unless he becomes another statistic. The film is now screening everywhere. We have the film's director here, Maya Newell, who is director with a focus on social justice. Her career includes award-winning short documentaries too, which screened at Slam Dance and Growing Up Gay Boy for AB's opening shot, Gay Boy. Gabby? Gabby. <laughs> Her new feature documentary, In My Blood It Runs, was selected for Good Pitch Australia and the Sundance Institute Documentary Fund. It premiered at Hot Dogs in 2019, but is now being released theatrically in February of this year. Maya, thank you for coming in and speaking with us today. Lovely to be here. Now, I attended a screening last week. Um, the cinema was packed out and it received a rapturous ovation from all that were there. Um, we see the world through Duane's eyes, pretty much, and the, the very start of the film is is um, basically him asking his mum a bunch of cheeky questions about which one's his, her favourite child, <laughs> which, um, you know, uh, brought us closer to him straight off the bat. How did you throw that very fine line to working with a community, telling that story, but not actually stepping over the line and shaping that story? I think that's a really wonderful question and the film is, sits on the foundation of a decade of work uh, of me working in Alice Springs with Arunda Mob at an amazing organisation called Akilira. And I think when we decided to make this film, we sat and really considered the politics of representation. You know, in this country we have a long history of misappropriation of First Nations stories and had to think really hard about how we would go about making this film. And as you said, there's incredible intimacy on camera. I walked alongside Duan filming him for two years and moved to Alice Springs to sit with the families. And what we did was we created a pretty 
um, unique uh, model of consultation where those in the film are the partners, the core creative control sat with Duan and his family and a really amazing board of advisors who sat around that, who from early messaging stage all the way through, you know, rough cuts, assemblies, fine cuts, we were having multi-day workshops about you know, what they wanted in the film. You know, we don't often in documentary, the history of documentary doesn't often do that with subjects uh, and also had incredible access to, say, Felicity Hayes, who who is our cultural executive producer and she's also the traditional owner of Mbantua of Alice Springs. So we tried to sort of transfer roles that were um, known in the film industry to um, match the kind of security and support that we received from families on the ground and... You know, when families know that the creative control sits with them and they have the decision of what goes in and out of a film, I think what you what you get is the intimacy that we see in In My Blood It Runs. I think I think every family member that appeared on screen seemed very relaxed. You know, <laughs> and it was like they seemed to forget about the camera after all after a while. Um Duan is an extremely charismatic, very funny extremely intelligent young man and yet he is basically just holding on the, the, the film shows that in Alice Springs he's, he's coming in contact with the police in, on a, in a regular basis welfare authorities are concerned about him he was um, suspended from his school what is it about someone who was so bright having a system basically tilted against them so that they're basically grappling on to to reality or success or a future. Absolutely. And I think at the core of the film, that is the message. It's like under these these labels that we put on children, these statistics that we place on First Nations children are incredibly vibrant, beautiful kids who will blossom if we can make space in our systems to value, educate and teach their identities. And that's where the film started. I was going out on country with kids from town camps and seeing that they, yes, yeah, spoke you know, two or three Indigenous languages. They were, you know, really confident in their first culture and it entered the education system. And so many of those children we were working with, including Duan, felt like failures at school. And so in lots of other countries around the world, kids have that basic right to learn through their own language, through their own culture. And it just, I suppose the question we want to ask is, you know, is are we measuring success in the right way for all of the children in, in Australia is is our education system really valuing who they are and where they come from. And one of, one of the things I like about the film is that <clears throat> it sort of intertwines the broader sort of social justice and political struggles that have confronted Aboriginal people over generations and intertwine that into his story. And he has an understanding of that history. Um, what was the... I mean, that's the the that's, title of the film, yeah, right? In my, blood it runs. in my blood, it runs. And really early on, Duan sat with me and he said, "Maya, like I've got a memory of history in my blood, it runs." And I was like, "Oh my god, this is this like really complex idea, even in Western culture that we yeah. haven't grappled with, which is like epigenetics and how we like hold trauma or history or memory in our DNA." And he's saying, "Like I am the summation of history." T- into to where I where I stand now and, and you'll see in the film there's quite a beautiful um, cut through of, of archive of the history of yeah. resistance of First Nations people. Very well people. done by the way. Mm. Thank you and and as a film team and with all of his advisors we wanted to try and um, give 
a poetic voice to his that concept of him saying, I, I understand history, it's, it's sort of in me. Mm. And I think for that message for wider Australia is something as a country we're grappling with. We are still in a state of denial about what happened here. And here is a child who says, well, I get it. Yeah. Well, you, you, you put it in a sort of a, a subcontext, those messages, but you also put it up front too. You, you mentioned specifically towards the end of the film that there was a Royal Commission into the um, detention of uh, Aboriginal kids or all kids in the Northern Territory at the Dondale Youth Detention Centre. And that as at the time of the, the, the finishing of the film, the, um, the film was wrapped up, 100% of kids in the Northern Territory um, that are in youth detention are still Aboriginal. And how absurd is that? You know, mm. like we are living in one of the richest countries in the world and we cannot fix that very obviously wrong statistic. Um, we sat with Duan very early, one of the, you know, early scenes we were filming and he was watching the allegations as they came out on Four Corners about the torture of children like Dylan Voller. Yep. And we all remember that moment um, as a country. It was shocking, deeply shocking. But when I was filming it, I was filming Duan watching that TV. And I don't know, like I hadn't really thought about what that might feel like to be a 10-year-old Aboriginal kid where your family is in that juvenile detention centre and all roads lead to juvie in, mm. in, in Bantua. And so I think it opens a different way of, of understanding and relating to and empathising with, um, that, with that issue. And the Royal Commission sort of contours the, the timeline of the film. Yeah. It was just what was happening in the background and the news was going on about, you know, what was happening with the hearings and the Royal Commission. And we were also following Dwan as he was, we were seeing him slip um, I walked. Yeah. I walked away from the film, sort of empowered, because there is a, a you know a call to action um, at the end of yes. the film, and that is to get involved in the raise the age campaign in particular. Um, but I also walked away um, uh, feeling worried for him, and that, that there are still so many challenges that he has to face as a young Aboriginal man. Are, are you worried about him? Look, I think that. Um I'm not going to stand here and say like, oh, everything's wonderful and great and after the film it's, you know, all a pretty ending. But I will say that for those who want to see the film, we would not have finished the film if this was not a story that Duan was proud of and essentially there is an ending that is hopeful because that's what we need in this country. It's also down to the power and the solutions that his family discovered and decided for him that, you know, Duan has a pretty amazing outcome and I just spent the last three couple of days with him at Hidden Valley Town Camp where we we launched the film and the uh, cinema release on what, the ground what, what where the film began. The, what did he think of the film? Oh he was so proud all the families <laughs> were there he was on the red carpet um, <laughs> and you know just speaking to media we also had the opportunity to go and present at the United Nations last year in September where he became the youngest person ever to present to the Human Rights Council. Wow. Um, and he was asking for changes from our government, but asking world leaders. And they were kind of basic, like child rights, which is, again, crazy. So he asked, can we stop, I hope adults can stop crueling Aboriginal kids in jail. Yeah. And he also asked, I want my schools to be run by Aboriginal people. 
And I think that's the other big part of, you know, what we're standing for. And like you said, there are lots of tricky things in the film, but what's really lovely is this campaign that we're creating around the film. You know, we actually do have the answers. His grandmothers are leading educational change and they're asking for Australia's support. Well, In My Blood It Runs is screening all over the place, um, particularly here in Melbourne at Cinema Nova. There's actually a uh, human rights and film festival, um, arts and film festival fundraiser screening at Cinema Nova, which I believe is sold out now. That was for the 21st of February. Um, you're screening it at the Parliament House before we let you go? Yeah. <laughs> it's really exciting. One. You know, I think to have that arc from coming from Hidden Valley Town Camp where they haven't had a film screening or public event in over 20 years and then um, landing in Parliament House on the 25th of February so that our MPs and politicians have the opportunity to learn something from Duan. Well, if you want to find out where the film is screening, head to inmyblooditruns.com forward slash screenings. Maya, thanks for coming in today. Thanks so much. I hope everyone can get out there and see the film. Triple R. The devastating summer that we are enduring in Australia has brought a stark reality to conversations around climate change, with even some of the staunchest climate denialists admitting we are now in the grips of a climate emergency. Margaret Klein Salomon, author, clinical psychologist, and founder and executive director of the Climate Mobilisation a group working to initiate a World War II scale mobilisation that rapidly transforms our economy to protect humanity and the living world, has written a book. And her book, Facing the Climate Emergency, How to Transform Yourself with, the climate, with climate Truth, is now available in all good bookstores around the country. And we're very happy to have her in studio with us now. Thanks so much for having me. Do you think after the devastating you know, summer we've had so far in, in Australia that it is now easier or harder for individuals and political leaders to get to the truth around climate change? It should be easier, but it does still take moral courage and uh, emotional fortitude to face the truth and tell the truth. It's still not easy, but it, it can be done. And you that the book calls for, for individuals to take to take action, so to do things like join climate, the, the, the climate emergency movement, understand how to enter emergency mode. But the part I found quite interesting was reimagining your life story. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So it's a self-help book for uh, helping readers to face the truth of the climate emergency experience the grief, fear, and all other feelings that come up with the climate emergency, to feel them with openness, curiosity, and self-compassion. And part of the grief that we feel is grieving the future that we thought we had. Mm. When, when I was growing up, I was told, uh, you know, the future was bright progress and possibility, right? I could do anything I wanted. Mm. And we, I, I had to face the reality that that is not true. And my lovely life that I had planned was not going to happen. But when you do that, when you grieve the future you thought you had, and really the person you thought you were on a stable planet with a stable climate, it does open up space for something else, somebody else with a different future and a different mission. So I challenge readers to 
ask themselves, what if your life was actually leading up to this? What if you have a heroic mission? And that's why you're alive now in this time of incredible consequence, almost unbelievable consequence. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a clinical psychologist. So telling the story of, of self, what, what your parents and grandparents and ancestors did and how you grew up as a child and what you learned through hardship that has made you who you are today, as well as your skills and blessings and privileges, that 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 person who you are has a unique role in fighting this climate emergency and fighting for life. How, how does one transform its oneself into a climate warrior? Face the truth, open yourself up to your feelings. There's so much fear of feelings in the climate movement. People say all the time, oh, don't scare people. Fear doesn't work as a motivator. Well, now's not the right time to talk about it. Keep it, keep it light, keep it hopeful, keep it optimistic. It's all bullshit. We have to, those, those feelings, that pain inside us is a signal. It's telling us something incredibly important, and it can motivate us to transform if we let it. So then reconsider your life story. Enter emergency mode, which is a state of mind when you realize the house is on fire. And if we don't solve this emergency, nothing else matters. We are all in danger. You, me, my family, your family, the whole human family. And then the final step is finding your place in the movement. And this is very hard. People say it's complicated. People say to me all the time, what can I do? What can I do? And it's... um. Finding your place in the movement is as complicated and personal a choice as a career path, choosing, choosing, your, choosing your life, choosing your, your path. But it, it can be done. In my, in my book, I talk about all of the different ways to join the movement and try to help readers think through what their skills can bring. So, for example... You all here have a radio show. Mm -hmm. So tell the truth, talk about the climate emergency, bring on guests to talk about the climate emergency, right? That is a unique contribution that you all can make. So how we're, we're, do you, oh, no, no, go forward. I was just going to say, how do you then deal with this? Is like a, if you take this on as a personal challenge, how do you circumvent the politicians who are changing that narrative and controlling the narrative constantly? In Australia, we've just had our most disastrous fire season yet. We're still in it. Uh, yet we have leaders that continue to shape a conversation that doesn't acknowledge that for what it is. It doesn't acknowledge the climate emergency that we're in. And so people are still, uh, when we have protests in the streets, are still writing op-eds about how the protests are stopping us from getting to work on time. So how, when you're trying to find your own path in this, do you also challenge the the structures that are, that are stopping that path? Yeah, I, I mean, it, that's a big challenge and a big part of building a winning movement is building enough power and different kinds of power to overwhelm those kinds of narratives. I it's I think the 
first thing, the easiest thing that every single person can do is to talk about the climate emergency with your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, soccer team, reading group, uh, church, everybody. And that through that kind of person to person conversation, and I want to I want to specify, you don't need to be a scientist, you don't need a master's degree, you don't have to talk about statistics or degrees or tons of carbon in the atmosphere. Talk about it personally. I am so scared about the climate emergency. I am so, I'm in so much pain and grief because of the billion animals that died in the fires that, that through approaching it this way, I mean, that's a, that's a grassroots communication effort that is more powerful than the propaganda they are feeding us. In some of your um, work, you talk about uh, a World War II scale mobilization to, to tackle climate change. How does that work? Does that have to be led by governments and do people have to drive that change? In order to transform our economy and society at the speed and with the comprehensiveness that we need, we do need the national governments. Only national governments can spend at the level and make the command and control regulations that we need, such as banning all new fossil fuel infrastructure for example, and moving to 100% organic permaculture agriculture in less than 10 years. These are are the kinds of changes and, and again, spending and regulation that we need, and only the federal government can do it. But that's our government, Mm. right? Or in Australia, it's yours. In the United States, it's ours. It doesn't always feel like that because they are captured by corporate interests, but The point is that we, the people, control the government, and we need to take it back. Is is the game up if uh, Donald Trump gets back in as president? That chief climate denialist. The election of Donald Trump has been a terrible setback for the climate movement globally. However, it has also exposed. The fact that in the United States, both parties have long been in deep denial about the scale and urgency of the climate emergency and and in a in pursuing what I call gradualism, right? Small changes that don't bother anybody and, you know, are cost effective and just this mentality of keeping climate within the realm of business as usual and the, let's say, good thing, silver lining of Donald Trump is it's like mask off. This system Mm -hmm. will kill us and we need to fundamentally transform it. Well, it's a fascinating topic and it's a fascinating book. Thank you for coming in today, Margaret. Margaret Klein-Solomon's book is Facing the Climate Emergency, How to Transform Yourself with the Climate Truth. And I believe it's um, only available in Australia at the moment. Yeah, that's right. It's coming out in April in the United States. But because I had this tour planned, my publishers released it early. So you can find it in bookstores or online and be one of the first global readers to get that chance. Thanks. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Dirt, dirt, dirt. It's where you grow your plants. Dirt, dirt, dirt. Hey, you got some on your pants. And you stop saying about dirt.
jerk. No. <laughs> no. Winter is coming, and now it's time to start thinking about sowing the seeds for winter vegetables. And who better to tell us all about that than just a Digger Cavalli, who is here in studio with us. Morning, Welcome, all. Digger. Hello. Brought the rain with me this morning. Good Thank man. you. Good man. What are you doing? My tomatoes just turned red four days ago, and you're coming in to talk about winter vegetables. Yeah, it's a it's a little bit of a weird thing in Hort, but you know you're always thinking, what's next? Yeah. You know what's next? We've got this full twelve months to roll through, and. Um, some stuff just takes a lot of time. So believe it or not, with the, obviously the, the weather we're having over the next couple of days, it's a bit you know, dark and dreary and wet, but that's good for the soil. It's, you know, we're going to get some hydration finally. But it's time for you know, the long-term crops. So you think about wintertime, um, it's all the brassica family. So if, you know, think broccoli, cauliflower, mm. um, kale, Brussels sprouts, cabbages, all of those things. And if you've ever grown them, you notice that their leaves are really big, broad and thick. Mm-hmm. Really dense and th- kind of leathery kind of things. Yep. Um, so that's obviously the evolutionary tact to try and you know keep fight warm. off. Yeah, keep them warm and fight off the cold. You know, that's oh. that's what they do. So and the bugs which eat them and lots and lots of bugs and there's a great. Oh, if you could have held on for. I'm so sorry. Se- no, that's <laughs> sorry. because I just there get was so a great. Excited. It was going to be so good, oh. Sarah. It was going to be so good. I ruin everything. And I should have prepped you beforehand, but I thought, no, it'll, it'll come up later. Anyway, um, so the the thing is that we've still got some warm weather now. Yeah, so you know, I'm going out on a limb. I don't think we're going to get over 30 anymore. Huge statement. Gone. Huge I've statement. gone big early, I know, but that's just... Look, so you're, you're a weatherman as well. It's in me waters. <laughs> the cane corn, so horticulture. Um, so, you know, it's going to be perfect growing weather. So in the you know, low to mid-20s, perfect. So if you sow your seeds for those things now, you'll get them up and they'll start to, you know, put on a little bit of growth. But then they'll get a couple of months then of growing time, which is, you know, those mid-20s are perfect growing season. So you can get them to put on a whole stack of leaf growth and advance themselves before the cold weather kicks in. And so once the cold weather kicks in, they'll slow right down. And so these crops are generally somewhere between 24 and 30 weeks right. it takes before you get anything. And because we are, you know, something like a broccoli or a cauliflower, you're, you're wanting to harvest the very last portion of their life cycle, which is the flowering part. So it's not like a lettuce where you can harvest the leaves, which mm. is the first part of a plant's growth. You have to wait till the end. So you need time for that. So, yeah, if you want to eat you know, all these winter vegetables, you've got to start them in summer. But how do you – so uh, can I ask a question? If you do have a bit of a summer garden, do you start just making space for them? Is it okay to plant them in and around? Plant the, them in and around, yes. Yeah, you so, don't have to re-prepare the soil or anything for them? Um, generally not. So, again, the brassicas aren't that hungry. So if you've got a lot of stuff that you've had in the summertime, this is where the organic kind of preparation of chop and drop goes into it. So your summer veggies, if you're finished harvesting, just chop them up. You've got your secateurs with you all the time, don't you? Mm. Yes, yes all the time. Oh, yeah, they are. I go yeah. down the woolies. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs> and uh, so just chop it all down and leave it on the surface and then plant your little seeds in and around where you'd want them to go. So even if your tomatoes haven't finished, you could plant your little you know, broccoli seeds underneath the tomatoes really? and they'll just come up through. The tomato will die down as the broccoli comes up. So do they feed off each other? Absolutely, yeah. It it's called the forest. You know, right. stuff, stuff dies down and other forest. stuff comes up through, you know. It's a really so, technical right. term, yeah. forest. <laughs> How do you spell that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> F-U. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's just following natural, you know, procedures that have been happening for billions of years that as one thing dies down, another one comes up and takes over from it. But to go on with your, your 
question before about stuff eating it. There is another plant in the brassica family. So the cabbage, cauliflower, broccoli, all those are in what's called the brassica family. Um, but there's one bad family member, and everyone's got that weird bad kind of, you know, uncle I've or whatever. It might be, yeah. oh, I mean. um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's called... Uh, Barbaria vulgaris or Barbaria verna. There's Arnie two. Barb. Arnie Barb. <laughs> but the thing about them is that as they grow up, they look very similar to a cabbage or a cauliflower or a broccoli. Oh, and so, you know, little ca- the cabbage, cabbage moss. Yeah. Um, and there's a couple of different types of cabbage moss. You know, there's a white one, there's a brown one, there's a brown and white one. Anyway, they come in and will fly in and see these things. And they can smell them too. That's how they navigate. And so they'll fly down and lay their eggs on the leaves of this Barbaria. And then when the eggs hatch, the little caterpillars start eating. And that's how you get the holes in your cabbages and all that. So the caterpillars that are eating it. But the barbaria part of the family is toxic. <gasps> so it kills the little caterpillars when they eat it. So then you're essentially wiping out the next generation that would be reinfesting into your garden. So it's planting a toxic Ooh. decoy into the garden. Sick bastards. <laughs> where, do you, where do you get these? I've got some in my pocket. Do you? Oh, wow. <laughs> thanks. Um, just seed companies you can you know, find. So look for Barbaria. Oh, has, it got, has it got a normal name? Uh, Landcress. Landcress. Yeah, it gets a common name, a normal name. <laughs> in brackets, cabbage moth. Yeah. Um, oh. So, yeah, it's putting a little decoy in there. And so you'd start growing that now too, plant seed or if you can find it in seedlings, um, planting that. So the devil amongst all the family. Evil and fiendishly clever. Yeah. yeah. So that's what you know. That's what we call a dead end crop. It's 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 put there literally to kill off what's you know going to kill your crops. How many? We can of, do how decoys. many would you put in with a? How many do you need? Heaps. Oh, no, it depends one? on you know. I would say you put one of those in for every five of your others. Hmm. So when it comes to like you know harvesting your crop, if, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you consume those things, they. Dangerous to humans? Well, Barbaria vulgaris is, but Barbaria verna isn't. It's actually like a spicy little mustardy kind of leaf that you can eat. Which one has she got? I've got so the dangerous the other one, one, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, don't confuse me. <laughs> um, yeah, so just don't eat them, I think, maybe. Yeah, so yeah you, just you, avoid them. Just avoid them, but, you, you know, Barbaria did, verna is how you, edible. How do you know... Which like it'll which? look different. Like yeah, well, the moth to... can't tell the difference, but you can. Well, ideally, you draw yourself up a little map in the garden of what you're planting where. See, yeah, see, that's a level of organisation oh, yes. that scatter I don't possess. See, I just scatter too um, <laughs> because I'm, I know what I'm looking at. Mm. But for someone who's a you know a, maybe not you know, a novice, don't have a crack before. Yeah, well, a novice. Well, what that's else? The word. <laughs> what else do green thumbs out there need to be aware of at the moment? Um, so. I spoke last time about summer pruning your fruit trees. Don't do it in this weather. So oh. the, one of the whole things is like you know, you're opening up wounds on trees, but we do it in summer because they can heal up quickly. But with wet weather like this, you're opening it up for infection because it's going to be a few days before it can dry out. So don't do that one now. Oh. But definitely prepping for all of your winter garden, where they're going to go, planning for you know where these. So if you sowed the seeds now, they won't be going in the ground until they're four weeks old if you're doing them in punnets. But if you're going to sow directly into the ground, you need to start prepping that now and get cracking. Digger, you're a walking encyclopedia. Thanks for coming in. Pleasure. Triple R. 2020 sees the 10th anniversary of the mighty Wheeler Centre. The Wheeler Centre is Melbourne's home for smart, passionate and entertaining public talks on every conceivable topic. Across 180 events each year and a unique collection of videos, podcasts and original writing, you'll find some of our finest local and international writers and thinkers sharing their expertise, their imagination and their ideas. It has quickly become a Melbourne institution 
And we're very fortunate enough to have Michael Williams, who has been the director of the Wheeler Centre and will remain so until March. He is an ex-breakfaster. He's a regular appearer on uh, ABC Radio and TV. He's a writer with some of his work being um, in The Guardian, The Age, Sydney Morning Herald and The Australian and elsewhere, and he's sitting here right in front of us right now. It's great. It feels like you're churching it up for a bit. I'm ready. I'm happy. I'll take that. <laughs> Sounds pretty impressive. No, I've just been in one job for 10 years. That's about it. That but is impressive, though. It is. I Like this time 11 years ago, I was just starting my second year as a breakfaster, mm. and uh, the idea of the Wheeler Centre was just kind of kicking around, and... Um, it, within about six months, I had the job at the Wheeler Centre and I was gone from these hallowed halls. Wow. Well, welcome home. Yeah, no, it's good to be back because I'm about to be unemployed again. So <laughs> I'll be, um, any graveyards going? Yeah. I'm ready. Always, mate. We were, Always. I'm ready. We were saying off air that there's nothing really like the, the Wheeler Centre anywhere in Australia and perhaps anywhere in, in the world. And over the last 10 years, it's basically become a Melbourne institution. Uh, I There wasn't much I would have left being a breakfaster for. I loved it and I, I wasn't looking for another job. And uh, the thing that was so exciting about 11 years ago was that no one really knew what the hell it was going to be. State government was setting it up. They were going to throw quite a bit of money at it. They wanted it to be... Uh, the working title at that point was the Centre for Books, Writing and Ideas, which I think you'll agree really rolls off the tongue. Mm. Um, it's pretty catchy. Um, but what it was going to be and what it was going to look like was kind of up to us to make up. And so th- for me, one of the most exciting things about being in this job for over a decade now, apart from ageing like five decades <laughs> in that time, uh, has been that we did get to invent it. Like we did get to say, okay, what should it look like? How should the talks work? Should they be free? How how do they connect with their audience? And that's been a big part of it. How has the Wheeler Centre then changed in those 10 years from what you first thought it might be to what it is as you're leaving it? Look, when we started, there were literally two of us who were kind of working out what to put together. And now there is a team of 23 who are amazing and incredibly good at what they do. Um, the you know at the start we genuinely didn't know how many events we might do in a year. Now we do a couple of hundred every year, wow. uh, just standard. Like the that thing of invention has meant that like ten years feels like a long time. And sometimes I think oh maybe I stayed too long and I didn't notice because I was just having so much fun. But actually, no two years have felt the same. We're mm. kind of I building imagine, it, and, yeah. like and that idea of it being an institution that's the hardest thing to do because you've got to do that organically. You don't want to be like one of those new food courts that tries to look like laneways to pretend that it's been there forever to say, oh, look, we're part of the fabric of the city. And you're like, you can't retrofit that. If you could retrofit that, Docklands wouldn't be a godforsaken wasteland. <laughs> like, you, um, you have to find a way to yeah. organically make Daniel it. Daniel lives in Docklands. <clears throat> Ouch. I'm, I'm, an, I'm an institution in Docklands. Are you near the Ferris wheel? Because I think that part's no, not okay. Either, not near the Ferris wheel. Okay, fine. I'm doing well. The library? Yeah, I'm... Um, uh, where do I go with this? Okay. Um, <laughs> Hurtful. <laughs> well, what have been some of the highlights of events over the 10 years? Look, I I mean, the thing about it as a job has been that it really is the 
professional manifestation of that what's your dream dinner party like you read a book that you love or you see a tv show or a film or you listen to music or whatever there's someone who's but jesus and john lennon are dead so i don't know who else (laughs) that said they were very reasonable guests when they came through the wheeler center their writers were kind of jesus had a loaves and fishes thing that was annoying but otherwise it was all right no like within reason you could just say oh i love the work of that person Let's invite them. And the idea that you have this resource that allows you to do that, to say, I don't just think Fran Leibowitz is one of the funniest women alive, we can issue an invitation and suddenly she's here kind of talking on a stage for us, is kind of bonkers. Mm. So that part of it, like all the way through, has consistently been this kind of exhilarating um, kind of cavalcade of smart brains talking about the stuff that they know, and that's been really good. I know that you've probably be, got to stay kind of neutral on some of these things, but has there been anyone that has you've invited with anticipation and has shocked you or has provided something that you didn't think they would? I remember seeing Mark Latham speak at a Wheeler Centre event years ago, kind of pre- uh, where he's skewed off to now, and it was it watching it was watching that event that I went, oh, you're pre full. No, you're not what I expected. You're not well. Yeah, pre full yeah. nut job. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But um, are you? So is it someone? I mean, he doesn't have to be late, but is it someone that you've? Uh, off air, I'll tell you all the people who secretly turned out to be dicks. Okay, um, because because <laughs> that's a list. Don't worry. Wow. Um, no, it. I mean, it's a funny thing. It's a funny thing putting on talks uh, from creative people because it's not a given that they're going to be good at that. Like yeah. you would even get that in here. You have people in for an interview and they might make the most wonderful uh, music or comedy or whatever in the world and then you try and get them to talk about it and they're a nightmare. Yeah. And so the idea we're in a weird point where our public intellectuals and our creatives are expected to get on the circuit and they're expected to be good at it and something like the Wheeler Centre expects them to sit on a stage and be interviewed for an hour. Mm. Um, it's not that unusual to find that person whose book you adore is just a Muppet on stage. And that that's, that's one of the things about putting on live events that you constantly have to be kind of conscious of is that at some point you lose control i reckon one of the the great successes of the of the center is how it seems to have become sort of more and more accessible over time so you know 2010 podcasts were just kind of beginning to become a thing and now that's an you know integral part of accessing content for the willow center um is that was there was there a plan or a design around that or was it just an evolving process we knew it was always important to us from the start that it had to be accessible to be meaningful. Like if it became another cultural institution that was for a kind of walled garden of people who belonged to a particular club, mm-hmm. then we'd be failing. Like it's really hard. Once you get institutionalised, <laughs> there's a tendency for that to happen anyway. It's yeah. clubby and people are either a wheeler centre person or they're not. They're comfortable coming into a heritage building in the CBD or they're not. And so... For me, working against that has always been a massive part of the job, is how do you make sure that no one can easily say, that's not for me? And so 70% of events are free. Um, We try and do stuff not just in our own building but out in other venues across the city and the the burbs and uh, regional Victoria. And you're right, the recording of events and kind of disseminating them widely is also part of just trying to get to people who can't come into the city at 6.15 on a weekday. What do you think the Wheeler Centre could do better? Is there something that in your time you kind of haven't achieved that you think 
it'd be nice to be able to see us achieve this. I think they've always had a bit of a vacuum in the leadership position, and I think they could get a new boss who would be more charismatic <laughs> and more kind of energetic. I can't argue with that. It's, so. a, it, it, it's like it's just a missed opportunity, and I think it's time that they really stepped up and got someone who had a bit of oomph in that role. So, so what is next for you? <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. Honestly, which people surprise people, they always think there's some kind of grand plan or whatever. I'd always mentally, I think people stay too long in creative roles and in cultural roles. I think that they're the best jobs in the world mm. and you want to hang on to them and you keep having fun. But I actually think, especially when they are about imaginative energy, you owe it to the organization, the place where you work, to be really honest about a time when a fresh perspective a fresh set of ideas are going to do a good job so that's uh, a way of saying i've got no idea what no i'm going to end about, so i'm terrified i'm terrified perhaps you can move the Docklands. I, I could i could um it's a fixer-upper, I heard. <laughs> are there any events that uh, the, the wonderful Triple R audience should be aware of that are coming up that are must-sees? There are lots coming up. Program 1 got launched last week, and there's lots in that that is very exciting. The one I would point to is April 3rd, is John Ronson is mm. back in town. He is... Um, Triple uh, R listeners would have heard him on this station many times over the years. He's the author of uh, The Psychopath Test, uh, Men Who Stare at Goat, uh, goats yep. um, but his most recent work is the podcast series The Butterfly Effect about the porn industry and he's out here talking Ooh. about that and it'll be an absolute cracker so that's one that I think um, the uh, details for booking are on wheelercentre.com yep. and there are some tickets left it's at St Kilda Town Hall on the 3rd of April well, well done. You've done well. Look, the best thing I've done is remember the details of that event without <laughs> looking at notes. Honestly, in 10 years, that is uh, somewhere in the Wheeler Centre office, there's someone fist pumping the air saying, he, he finally learned how to do radio. <laughs> Michael Williams, thank you for coming in. Pleasure to be here. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Uh, it's been... Coming on five months mm. when we, um, Kath and I, started our kitchen renovations. Yes. Oh, what yeah. a, a ride it's been. Yeah, it's still going. <laughs> High highs, Lulu's. Uh, is, is your place the size of the Taj Mahal or? No, it's tiny. Right. And, and, but we re, um, we've redone the bathroom. Uh, no, bathroom's done. We've re- redone the kitchen um, mm. to, did a redesign to fit more things in. Right, okay. Kath wanted a dishwasher. Luxury. Yeah, and to get that dishwasher in meant that we had to remodel had the to kitchen. Had to reconfigure the whole place. Yeah. Um, and that was nearly five Yeah, nearly five months ago. And I can't help but think that, in fact, the, the evil, Kath's evil plan was just to remodel the entire kitchen. And she was like, what's the one thing I could come up with yeah. that would <laughs> mean that I have to do that? Do you know what else has been great? We've put in a um, washing machine as well, like a washing machine, but it's a washing machine dryer combo. Is that, so is that, that, in, the, is that in the kitchen? Is that sort of like a European, European setup? European laundry, Gotcha, yeah. right. I didn't even know there existed this washer slash dryer in one. It's Where you been, man? I know, yeah. I'm out of touch. <laughs> changed my life. And it's like a, um, but it's like a condenser dryer. So it just, yeah, just sucks all the water out. And then... Um, uh, you have to open the door, though, otherwise it just gets wet again. Um, from con- anyway, who cares about that? <laughs> it doesn't matter. 
The point is that I love my washing machine. That's one bonus. Having just been out because we had a communal laundry, but the communal laundry was next door. Uh, like the wall was next door to a kid's bedroom, so oh, the right. parents were like, "If we could not do laundry at, such in the middle such. of the night, yep. like that's fair. It's totally fair." And you were also constantly asking everyone for gold coins oh, in yeah. your life. <laughs> yes, because laundry day. Do you have gold coins? <laughs> Because the washing machine would only take three one dollar coins, three not not two, not just gold. It had to be three one dollar coins. And then if you didn't, um, if the machine wasn't on, you just put the coins in, and then you go, "Damn it, I didn't turn the machine on." Your coins were gone, <laughs> gone. Oh. And then we had new neighbours moved in once, and then they left a note saying. If anyone turns this machine off, can they please turn it back on? Because, you know, you lose your coins and we're like... And was there much jamming? Jamming of the coins? No, no. It no. Was, and as far as the, the machine and the coins itself, all well maintained. And Very good. you never thought of like, you know, shaking the shit out of the machine to get, you know, maybe a gold coin would fall out or uh, you can get some coffee money for the week or... No, it's like... Like Fort Knox. <laughs> There's no way you could get into those coins unless you had, you know, you needed two keys opening at the same time. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, but also but when she left that night, it was like, oh, mate, you're only going to do that once. Like yeah. you're never going to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once you've done that. Yeah. Don't you love the passive-aggressive note left yeah, in but, communal spaces? Oh, it's the worst. <laughs> But it was like, I think we all understood her pain because we'd all been through been it before. There. It was just like, okay, it's okay, mate, <laughs> you know. Anyway, so it's nice to be able to, you know. So there's parts of the, the kitchen now that we're actually able to use. Um, and it's funny, like, oh, we'll kind of, because the only thing left to be done now is um, cats in the middle of tiling and just a few other, like, um like the skirting boards and stuff. So like like the Death Star, how, what percentage operational is it? Is it fully operational or is it, you know, 75% operational? Uh, I'd go um, if you move things around, right. like there's just a bit of e- extra effort mm-hmm. to do things, but it's at like, you know, 100%. Right. Are you feeling like it's been worth the pain of six months of living in dust yeah. and stuff? Now you're like, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, absolutely. But also because the tiling, because there, there was a while of just the kitchen was all in, we're using it, it was just the tiling, but so we just had blank walls. It was like, no problem. Everything was being used. It was great. So renovations can mm. like become all-consuming yep. and become like a major, maybe the major part of your life. Mm-hmm. Now that you're approaching the end of that, are yeah. you concerned that there's just going to be a big void in your life, emptiness? Uh, I think I might be a bit concerned of, for Kat and what she's going to do yeah. next. <laughs> right. Um, she needs a new project. I'm worried I for you. I think the backyard is next. Oh, that's not a bad thing. So I was going to say, yeah. I'm worried for you for the period of time in which Kath is seeking out the new project. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're going to be navigating, oh, what are we going to yeah. do? What am I going to say yes to? I think she'll... Um, I think she'll get back to her quilting for a bit. Well, she has been quilting a lot. I follow Kath on Instagram and mm. there's been a yeah. lot of quilt action recently. She's what a, a good quilt. She's a weird cat to follow on Instagram, she's isn't a, she? That is a very good way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So many contradictions in Kath's life, yeah. life as well. You just don't expect Kath, who's, who can tear a kitchen apart, 
and, you know, is quite handy to then be sitting down and, uh, you know, taking lovely pictures of her beautiful quilting project. It's just these two things that I wouldn't have originally put together, but now I I understand. We're all full of contradictions and that's what makes life beautiful. Yeah, Yeah, this is very true. She is beautiful. And um, so... (laughs) But she, so, oh, so it had been like for a while there, there was a bit of a, it was like the eye of the storm where everything was still and there was no dust and <laughs> we got to just enjoy the kitchen for a bit. And then the, the tiling started oh, yeah. and then it, so then it was like cutting tiles in the, so it was just so another dust storm. You cut through. tiles? Kath cuts tiles. Right, okay. Kath and her dad, you know, they were doing the tiling together, um, but it's, you know, I can. There's been a lot of progress, and that's been terrific. And also, how's this? Kath yesterday sends me a message and of a picture of a bottle of vodka, and she goes, "I found this in one of the hidden in one of the top cabinets." No, that is yeah. wonderful. Is this like the thing you found hidden? Didn't you find something hidden in the wall as well? Was that you? Oh no, that was some friends of mine who were renovating. They found something hidden in a wall, like an old porno hidden in a wall, oh. <laughs> and they said that that was like a common thing for. Yeah, builders to do in the seventies or something. It's like this little gift. It's like an old porno. Oh, it's very thoughtful. Yeah, Yeah. thoughtful. Um, I prefer a bottle of vodka though. Yeah, even more thoughtful, isn't it? Because I was like, was there anything in it? Because it was about a a shot left. I was like, what is? Where did that bottle of vodka come from? Actually, you know, just quick, I was looking up, um, you know, hidden things in renovations. Ah, Um, and yet porn is a, you know, it's a thing. Lots of, but how's this? Someone, uh, this is in America. They um, people were doing renovations, and then on the wall there was a like a picture, and then next to it a, a picture of a couple, and next to it saying hi, the where the Shizenskis, um, Shensukis, uh, we remodeled this bathroom summer nineteen ninety five. If you're reading this, they, that means you're remodeling the bathroom again. What's wrong with what we did? <laughs> and then they showed a photo and then had a photo of their rabbit as well for some reason. Anyway. Um, Is Kath going to – I feel like you guys should put together a little time capsule for something that you should put in the kitchen that's somewhere. That's a bad idea. Yeah. Whatever it might be. Maybe we'll just put the bottle of vodka back up there. But the vodka, though, we're like looking at it going, where did this vodka – because there's only been like – Two other people that lived in our apartment, like the last person that lived there was there for, you know, 20 years or something. So was was the vodka, did you have to actually smash down a wall to get to it? So No, it was like tucked up in that right at the end so, cupboard. So you had and- someone used to like to sneak a little... Nib every now well, and then. That's what I thought. Oh. There's, see, there's a movie in that. Yeah. You know, it's, screenplay. Because we were like, what, you know, was he... But he lived by himself and it's like, why? Why hide it from yourself? Why hide it? Yeah, why hide Yeah. And it was like, well, you know, maybe. Maybe but- it was someone that came to visit him who... Yeah, yeah. Who, who was like, I just need some vodka to get through yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. I've got, I've got, a, I've got a bunk here for a couple of weeks because I'm renovating my kitchen. Yeah. And, you know... The owner didn't approve of alcohol, and so they've Maybe. bought their little bit of vodka and they just tucked it away. But also, do you know what's funny about it? It was like this – it was a reasonably small one and kind of made of um, plastic, like it wasn't a glass bottle. Mm. That's because it like, so it won't clink. Yes. Yeah, when, when trying to get it out so. from behind the, the – But also, on further investigation, um, we realised that um, it wasn't hidden in there at all. <laughs> it was no. sitting, been sitting up on top of the – like all the on top of the shelves and it just fallen down. Oh, sorry, that's no mystery. Triple R. He's been a father for a whole week, 
And it's time to check in on everyone's favourite new dad, Mr. Daniel Burt. Hey. Hello. Work aunties, hello. <laughs> hello. Work aunties, I love it. Um, it's to, well, where do we begin? What's it like being a new dad? Well, it's, you know, it's. I'm going to start every sentence now with uh, speaking as a father. <laughs> <laughs> you and my lessons on. Um, All right, you're fired. It's, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's, it's, it's been uh, very heartwarming to receive so many congratulations and thank you to everyone who monitored Chubfish Labor Watch and stayed abreast of his progress. Uh, I'm delighted to confirm, as you did last week, that Chubfish made land on Valentine's Day. And uh, Jesse was in labour during Friday's show and uh, Sarah <laughs> was told, and I listened back, leaned into the morning and played love songs um, against type, which was nice. And <laughs> Thank you. I also, I, I also want to shout out to the listener who suggested during labour we listen to Push It by Salt and Pepper and uh, <laughs> honourable mention to Give It To Me Baby by Rick James. <laughs> <laughs> Personally, I, I, uh, my, my favourite birth song is Pop Goes the Weasel. But I don't think <laughs> no. Yeah, whistling and um, let's check in. How was your birth partnering? Uh, were, you, were you calm? Oh, look, I was a strong, supportive, calm and confident birth partner, no doubt about it. And uh, far be it from me, actually, to blow my own trumpet. But I... I I was really good. Like I, I stepped up. I, I was, I was, uh, I was. I felt like Kevin Cheedy at three quarter time. Like I just <laughs> really. I, and word spread. You know, other mothers are hiring me out. You know, they. What did the What did the nursing staff have to say? And the medical staff? Did they give you pats on the back? They, look, they did. They did. Uh, I mean, and it's also. There wasn't going to because there was originally going to be like a gallery of like a peanut gallery of people uh, observing like Jesse's family and stuff. But in the end, it was just me and an obstetrician and a midwife. And, uh, and 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 breakfasters playing. And no, there was, we didn't we didn't listen to anything. There was the birth plan got shredded. <laughs> Daniel, uh, this is uh, Daniel. This is Daniel. Can you hear me loud and clear, man? <laughs> Yes, man. <laughs> um, what's it like being a father? What's it like having, you know, proper responsibility now? Uh, well, it's, there's only so much I can do uh, but, but at this very early stage. But it is fun. It, you know, it, I, you know, and obviously first-time dads and fathers already, you know, they... I'm, I'm very new to this game, incredibly new. Uh, but it is... It is... You know, Gabriel, which is his name, Gabriel Victor James. Oh, thank God we can uh, stop using Chubfish. <laughs> That's right. Uh, people think, like, Gabe the Babe seems marginally more acceptable than Chub the Grub. <laughs> uh, and but I also want to slip this in as well, that um, Dad informed me, and this is true, that Gabriel the Archangel, and I'm, I'm not making this up, is the patron saint of radio broadcasters. Get out. That it's is... True. Wow! A weird factoid and amazing at the same time. That is extraordinary. Now I'm not a I'm not a father myself, um, but I I've heard of these kids and the kids are like smaller us, aren't they? But they grow up to be us. Is that is that correct? I mean, I've seen them on the street. I've seen them at supermarkets. And I think they're in the distance, but they're not. They're small and just standing next to me. <laughs> is that 
So that's what happens eventually, isn't it? They grow up to be 100%, like... 100%, you've nailed okay, it. Okay, all right. It's, it's also, I mean, he looks really, you know, he, he does look like me. Like, I think that... Does he really? Mm. He's got the stubble yeah. already. <laughs> that's right. Um, and Dr. Jen talked about this once about how babies tend to look like their fathers when they're first born. So they know that you don't think you cheated. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go for it's a, important. Go for a pack of cigarettes permanently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, and it's, he's very, you know, I feel quite, um, uh, I, I feel not rude, but he's, he's so cute. But I feel, yeah. and look, is it possible that I've roasted into glasses? Yes, of course. But he's so cute, but he looks like me, so I feel like it's incredibly narcissistic. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've nailed, parent- you've nailed parenting there anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, and and so- how's Jessie going? Oh, she's, she's incredibly... I mean, she loves it, and she's, she's very healthy, and it's beautiful uh, to watch her and Chubfish... Um, it's Gabe the Bay. That's right. I've, you know, occasionally I get punted from bed. I have to sleep somewhere else because Chubfish is, you know, like he's 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 sort of ruling the roost, and I'm running errands and doing all sorts of stuff. Uh, but yeah, she's she's really really healthy. Me, not so much. But that's always been a lifelong problem. <laughs> it's, it's been a week. When will the um, uh, parenting help book come out that you're about to write? <laughs> I think the year anniversary. I'm in conversations with the publishers already. <laughs> there are a few tips I would say, like for instance, like in, in hospital, uh, you know, because you got to there are the, the guests coming out, coming along, and I'm like the bouncer for the guests. Like ah, the right. Oh, yeah, yeah you yeah. are. Yeah, but there was there was I saw a, a medication on the floor, like a, and I I was like, oh, uh, you know, I was like, oh, is that a Tramadol or an oxy, like I was like, oh, but no, it was a stool softener. So, ah. many perks. <laughs> this is a tip. A tip is to pick up, look, look for stool softeners on the ground. I feel like you've got to um, pick up your Instagram game as well now that you're a dad because Instagram right. is effectively made for babies. Okay. Babies um, and cats. You start, yeah, supposed to start boring your audience now with uh, various shots of your. Young fella at various angles doing various things. Yes, well, I'm I'm prepared to lean into being insufferable. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> if that's your branding advice, he did he did weigh. I'm not sure if anyone cares about this. He weighed seven pounds thirteen ounces, and I still don't ask me why hospitals use Imperial. I still <laughs> don't get it. And also, you you may have seen he. I sent you photos. He has massive feet. Oh, oh. How much. Attention, you were paying. He, he, I didn't he pay also, attention to his feet, no. This is when you start. I, I think, well, I think three of those pounds may reside in his testicles because they are massive. So this is where you, this is where you start. Sarah's out. This is where She's you start out. speculating about what, what they're going to be when they grow up. So at this point, it seems that they're going to either be a basketballer, a porn star, or both. Elephantine, I don't know. Jesus, Daniel! That's it. Go back to your bubble. (laughs) It's been so nice talking to you. Um, We'll check in maybe again next week and see how you're feeling. Thanks, guys. I love to Gabe the Bay. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. 
Feel free to get in touch with uh, Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website.